Hello, and welcome to Through the Human Geography Lens, a podcast brought to you by the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group, or WWHGD. I'm Terry Ryan, and today I'm in the studio with my longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Eric Rasmussen. Eric, it is great to see you. And Terry, it is great to see you. Thank you very much for letting me be here. Yes, absolutely. So we have a special guest with us today. Would you like to introduce her to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, this is Jessica Block. Um, Jessica is an environmental spatial analyst from UC San Diego, who also holds an appointment from the governor of California that we're going to talk about. Wow. Welcome to the show, Jessica. We are thrilled you're here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So Jessica, I first met you back in 2012. I know Eric's known you for a lot longer than that. Um, but in 2012, we met in San Diego and you've been a longtime friend of the WWHGD. So what have you been up to lately? And can you tell us a little bit about your role? Well, um, I, uh, my career has had taken some twists and turns. I started as a geologist, but very quickly um, found myself using different technology tools to apply to environmental uh, problems nationally and internationally, and have really focused a lot on climate change related issues. And now I'm almost entirely focused on wildfire, but that's not all that I've done. Um, in the last few years. No, that is absolutely not all you have done. Um, as I recall, you started in Australia, but then you had a, a kind of migration into some vis virtual realities, some other things. Um, can you talk a little bit about how things started in Australia and moved from there? Yeah, I, um, I did. I was doing a, a relatively short research project in rural Australia looking at drought, and it was 2008 to 2009. Um, they were in the 10th year of a, of a severe drought um, nationally, and I was there working on how um, small communities can make decisions about water allocation. And at that time, there, the Black Saturday fires began, and it was a large fire. It killed a bunch of people. It was unprecedented, and it, it instigated conversations with my colleagues our colleagues um, in San Diego, um, talking about ways to enable internet and to be able to share better information um, with residents uh, to help with uh, safety and response in wildfire. Um, that brought me back to San Diego to, to work with those colleagues um, who use telecommunications and faster internet and different technological tools, including satellite image analysis and um, uh, all, all kinds of, um, of other analytics like machine learning to understand our environment and respond to disasters. Now you had some unusual techniques that got underway at UCSD that involved, for example, an immersive, an immersive visual reality cave. What was that all about? Yeah, um, some of the folks, so I was, I was hired under um, the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, and there's some really brilliant guys that work there. One who um, was one of the pioneers of the virtual reality cave, Tom DeFonte. And we used the cave to look at wildfire scars and environmental conditions and how the weather and the topography affect risk on communities. Um, and we've used the cave for a number of applications since. Um, it's been very exploratory, and and since then, because that was you know back in in two thousand nine, um, 
the virtual reality headsets have taken off and there's all kinds of, of additional expansive applications for virtual reality to understand these types of problems. Yeah, that's one thing I was just thinking is when you talk about machine learning and VR in 2009, that was extremely cutting edge. Yeah, and it was it was uh, it was it was tough. We had to hack a lot of things together to make it look right and to 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 use what limited data we had um, to describe the scientific problems we were we were trying to understand. And now, you know, we're talking about virtual worlds and digital twins and, you know, the the world has caught up to that. That makes good sense. And I'm glad to hear that this has been a process that has been both geospatial and very real world environmental science. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happened with Wi-Fi? There was a period of time when some of that imagery analysis that was being done was being done over um, a, a LAN that was looking at San Diego County mountaintops. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the San Diego is kind of an, an epicenter of fire technology development. Um, San Diego County had large wildfires in 2003 and 2007, and now the rest of the state has been engulfed over the last few years. But um, <clears throat> at that time, UCSD had Hans Werner Braun and uh, Larry Smarr, who were part of the original uh, NSFNet building internet throughout the United States. and um, were building a higher speed internet connectivity and had webcams attached to them back in 2003. And so they were used to track wildfires. It was the only intel that was available um, to the rural communities of San Diego County. And today the uh, HP Wren and the Alert Wildfire groups um, have put mountaintop cameras throughout the state of California and expanding into other states, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and are used extensively to track for for wildfires, for smoke plumes and to track the behavior of wildfire. Are you finding that these mountaintop cameras are effective at giving those early warning? So right now a lot of there's a lot of companies that are working on the machine learning early detection, automated early detection process. Um, and for the last several years, people have just been using, you know, hi hiring people and volunteers to just look at the cameras and track for plumes. Um, and the way I use them in my day job is if I see, if I get a 911 call for a vegetation fire in Southern California or anywhere in California, I look to see what, what mountaintop cameras might be looking in that direction. And I use them to, there are enough of them now that I can triangulate a very specific, um, location to initiate a predictive fire behavior model. That's exactly was my next question. I was I was going to ask you and when you talk about triangulation, how are you using this for you know predictive analytics so we can maybe at some point get to the left of these wildfires? Yeah. So, um, Wildfire teamed up with the Los Angeles City Fire Department a few several years ago, and we started running wildfire behavior models on the initial attack of a wildfire, which means on the onset of a fire that we know could have some potential for being a risk, we run a fire behavior model. And that never used to be done before. Um, the fire behavior models um, have their challenges. Sometimes the data inputs are a challenge, but through the process, especially using all of the weather sensors that are in California today, thanks to the utility companies and the cameras that are also funded by the utilities, we can know um, where the fire is and what environmental conditions are on it. And 
model where it might go so that evacuations can happen more effectively immediately. So the modeling that has been done recently is probably coming in from a lot of different places and you're probably combining a lot of science from around the world. Let's shift a little bit. We have um, a long history, Jess, where you and I have assisted with deployments of various kinds, and you and I have actually been to international deployments where there has been an exposure to those people that are trying to gather data with very few resources. Um, that's an international problem. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw, for example, in Mexico City in people that were trying to gather data with very few resources and what they were doing to accomplish their goals? Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing to see the commonality across the world of governments being underfunded and under-resourced to understand what which communities need what resources. And when we were in Mexico, I was really impressed with the ability to gather demographic data at really high resolutions, at, I thought, um, spatial and temporal. Um, to understand where people are and what their what their resource needs are, um, we have, you know, we have honestly similar challenges in the United States, and um, and it's hard to it's hard to to track comprehensively um, where people are and how how the demographics of a of a place are changing. I think globally, we're it, cities are changing dramatically right now, and it's um, affecting people vastly differently. Now, you've been doing quite a bit of analysis over time uh, using satellite imagery, and you have worked with groups um, in Mumbai and elsewhere. Can you talk a little bit about what's come out of that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, just as, as I was talking, that the cities are changing dramatically really fast. Um, uh, my, we had a group at UCSD called the Big Pixel Initiative for a while where we were working with Maxar and using the worldview satellite imagery, which is about a, a half meter per pixel. And we were using it to test whether or not we could use machine unsupervised machine learning techniques to identify key features in satellite imagery. Um, so can we detect the difference between, um, or can, can, we can we detect where slums are and their density compared to formalized urbanized areas? Um, can we use them to detect where schools, rural schools are in uh, places that are hard to reach in Liberia? So we've done those projects in partnership with UNICEF and, um, and other nonprofit organizations to see if we can detect features um, that can be learned in the imagery and help, for instance, with the UNICEF project know where internet needs to go to provide equitable access to all schools um, throughout the nation. So that's interesting. So when you talk about the looking at the worldview imagery and applying machine learning models, has anything like really fascinated you that you, you didn't expect? Yeah. I mean, the things that I've learned are that the urban form can be very uh, place specific. So if we train a model, say, on Mumbai, we can't apply that model to London. Um, so we know that you know, first world versus third world urban form can be very different, and it'll be probably climatologically different too. Um, and so when we want to use machine learning to understand our cities, we probably need 
a library of models to understand the dynamics and how, how these cities are shifting um, in their own way. That's and that was fascinating. Really yeah. I, and I think, I think that that's something that maybe a lot of people may not understand. You kind of think sometimes like we can, you know, build once and use many, but as you say, really, you would need a library of models because um, countries, cities, places, they change. Um, they're different. So Yeah. And I, I think it's what's really important about, you know, trying to apply technology to social problems is that you really need to have social context to know what you're looking at. You can't just apply algorithms to solve your problems. You actually you need to understand social dynamics so that you can interpret what's, what the machine is trying to do and if it actually matches reality. Because sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes a physical feature in a satellite image is not actually the interesting feature that you're looking for. Um, so social context and nuance and understanding a place are, are super important when you're addressing these kinds of problems. So what you've been um, exploring over the past few years has come to the attention of those who are trying to solve problems up and down the state of California. Can you talk for a moment about an appointment you received to try to explore that at the state level? Yes. So unfortunately, climate change has uh, shown up in California more ra very rapidly and urgently in the last few years we've got massive wildfires um, an unprecedented dry lightning storm in 2020 and um, but in the last several years also some of those large wildfires have been started by utility companies infrastructure um, which is an aging infrastructure and the state of california is large and it's a massive it's a massive um, lift to to uh, improve that infrastructure so there's been some legislation that was passed that involved creating a wildfire safety advisory board to advise the state of California how the utilities can be regulated by the state. And I was one of those people appointed by the governor, um, by Governor Newsom, to bring my expertise as an environmental scientist and a technologist using um, emerging technology to try to understand the scientific problem and to, um, to help this state collaboratively and proactively address this problem. So that sounds like something that is going to crash um, some um, idealistic um, technology attempts um, into the practical firefighting on the ground. And that might be a bit of a clash of cultures. How's, how's that gone? That's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, it's, it is very interesting. I think Firefighting has been traditionally very low tech. Um, and now the utility companies are hiring whole teams of data scientists and um, and doing a bunch of research on, you know, emerging technology just to uh, provide um, more resilient hardware. Um, so, and, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's even the clash of ecologists versus engineers versus, you know, arborists who see risk and problems very differently. So, you know, whether one tree is healthy or not, or near a utility line or not, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether the forest is healthy and is ripe for burning upslope or downslope of that utility line. 
it's a very complicated problem and um, it's hard to share the load to figure out how to how to address it. Well, speaking of sharing, do you have, as you know, the, the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group is all about openly available data uh, for sharing. If you have any data that we've talked about today that you could share, we'd love to know about it. Or if you have those go-to resources that you you know, you know, and you love, and you want to make sure that our, our listeners are aware of. We'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I, that's an excellent question. Actually, my group, the Wi-Fi Lab, we're at the Supercomputer Center at UCSD, and we um, are funded by the National Science Foundation currently to build a portal that we call the Wi-Fi Commons. And we're working to federate data, all things um, related to wildfire that can be openly shareable. Um, and the platform has a couple of pieces to it. So there's the data access. We serve some of it, but mostly we federate to organizations that are serving their data as well. Um, and some of that is actually in partnership with like San Diego Gas and Electric. So they build their own weather forecast models and they're porting them to us so that scientists and responders can have access to those higher resolution weather forecasts. It's a big deal when it comes to um, fire fire weather risk that we're getting much more frequently these days. So some of the big challenges here are that the data that people need to understand their environments is bigger and we need to make that accessible. And then to advance the science to understand that, we also are providing um, data portal access so that you can integrate that data um, into predictive models and, 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 and apply those to new tools. So you can find the Wi-Fi Commons at wifire.ucsd.edu. And it's very much in development, but we are, um, and it's currently quite locally focused, um, but we do um, have conversations with nations who are interested in the same challenges. And we've had collaborative exchanges with Australia and um, some other um, international groups um, that are just beginning. So um, there's just a lot of a lot to be learned nationally um, in this space and internationally. And speaking of internationally, you sit on a border. Um, and I think that some of the work that you have done in the past has involved air quality across that border. Some of it, I think, using drones. Can you talk for a moment about that? It's, it's interesting to be at the San Diego Tijuana border um, because during fire season, there can be smoke plumes that are originating on the Mexico side that are that are uh, frightening the California side as to you know where the fire is and how it needs to be fought. There have been multiple times where there's concerns for fires that could be crossing the border from the California to the Mexico side and vice versa. Um, and uh, and the the nature of those of those fires can also be very different. Um, Different, there have been different uh, philosophies towards how fires are fought on both sides of the border. So the fire behavior can be different as well. Um, and yes, we've, I've done some work also in, on air quality and smoke plumes and how it's affecting human health. Um, and yeah, and so, and we see these plumes from the wildfires covering the entire continent for weeks and months at a time now. It's a, it's a big deal. So uh, fire doesn't care much about uh, international borders. <laughs> well, 
Well, Jessica, this has been great, and it's been wonderful to have you in our studio today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting um, to be here and love what the Human Geography Data Working Group is doing. My group and I are dedicated to open data and open science, and, and that's um, our mission to the extent that we can help support that with you all is, is what we hope to do. Thank you. Thank you. So please join us next week for another conversation on human geography and human security on Through the Human Geography Lens. If you're interested in learning more about human geography and the WWHGD, check us out at WWHGD.org, where you can find more than 5,000 cataloged human geography datasets and access presentations and recordings from more than 50 data-driven events. I'm Terry Ryan. And I'm Eric Wilkinson. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you next time.